Hello, space fans. Welcome to another edition of Last Week in Space, the supercluster podcast that brings you all the latest updates from the world of space exploration. I'm here today with Chris Gebhardt, assistant managing editor of nasaspaceflight.com, who is a stone's throw away from Cape Canaveral at the moment. We've both come off a very long week of Apollo 11 celebration, and we're going to recap that for everyone and just everything that NASA has done to mark the occasion. This episode of the Supercluster podcast is powered by Dropbox. Here at Supercluster headquarters in New York City, we use Dropbox every day to plan our editorial and even write out these podcasts. All right, Chris, it's been a couple of weeks of the hashtag Apollo 50 celebrating 50 years since Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin took those first steps on the moon. It was a national celebration. Things happening all along the eastern seaboard at the very least. I was in Washington, D.C., Chris, you were traveling a little bit, so did you end up doing any celebrating or anything? For me personally, yes, but I was mm. un- I was unfortunately not able to make it to any of the big sponsored events because of some travel. I know we had great turnouts at, at the Kennedy Space Center and the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station marking that, but uh, Rob, I mean, it, I mean, you need to tell me what it was like <laughs> to see the Saturn V projected onto the Washington Monument, because that to me was the coolest way to celebrate this anniversary. Yeah, so I headed down to D.C. last Tuesday, and the first night they were projecting it was, I believe, that night. So um, I gathered with some friends, some NASA folks and some Smithsonian folks uh, also, and space photographers John Krauss and Craig Vandergalen came up to D.C. So we all met up. We went out for tacos, as space people do, (laughs) and then we walked over to the Washington Monument. Now, the Tuesday night wasn't the actual show, but they were just doing the projection, and it was incredible. I have never seen anything like this. I thought it was going to be a still image, but it was actually a motion graphic. So it was venting. Now, you and I, of all people, know when we're standing out there either scoping out a static fire or anything, that venting is really just... It's, it, it means the rocket is alive yeah. um, in a way. To see that on the Saturn V on the Washington Monument was really, really cool. And as they turned it on, people started gathering and there were people already there. A lot of meatball t-shirts out there. And just, it was such a cool atmosphere. And, and I think it was really driving this atmosphere of wonder and awe. It was, I, I can't say for certain it was a one-to-one scale, but it really did look like it. It was just larger than life, and it was incredible. Now, fast forward a couple nights later, we showed up for the very first 17-minute show where they go through the whole launch, the flight, the lunar insertion, everything. That was extraordinary. The mall, the National Mall, was packed to the brim, just nowhere to stand. There were so many people crying and cheering and clapping throughout the whole show. And there was just a ton of NASA people out there, too, which was great just to see so many space people in D.C. That scenario for me and for you, too, Chris, is always at Cape Canaveral when we're always staring at actual Pad 39A from a distance. (laughs) So it was weird to see Pad 39A projected on the monument. I was with a bunch of our spaceflight friends and... um, I was with our friend Kelly, who uh, was standing next to me watching the Saturn V projected launch. We were actually standing next to each other during the last Falcon Heavy launch, which was from 39A. Mm -hmm. So it was a a cool, cool experience 
just to witness that. I didn't go to other nights, but there was a show and I think a little bit of a concert. Adam Savage showed up, a bunch of our friends showed up. It was just a very cool experience. I'm wait, hearing... wait, wait, Adam Savage, like Mythbusters Adam Savage? Yes. Oh, yes. nice. He was there. Yeah, yeah. I think he wore a similar spacesuit or something that Neil did. But it was such a cool experience. And I think at the end of the day, from what I read, half a million people got to experience that wow. over the few days. Wow. Which, that's incredible. It is. And, you know, so much. And, and to me, sort of reflecting on how far we've come, you know, it wasn't for me just a moment of, oh, wow, we did that. It was, it was really thinking about what's changed in those 50 right. years. And, and to me, the biggest sign of that was when Roscosmos, the, the Russian Federal Space Agency, on July 20th released an open letter. And, and reading it gave me chills when, when Russia congratulated NASA on creating the only workable super heavy lift vehicle to date. Right. And, and the amazing technical achievement that it was to put a human being on the moon. And that really speaks volumes as to where we are 50 years later when the competitor showed so much class on that day. And, and that's such a lot. International, it's, it's international yeah. efforts now. You know, it's, it's right. no longer, for the most part, it's no longer nation versus nation or, or company versus company. It's, it's how everyone is sort of working together. And that's a huge change in, in what the programs that have come after Apollo have, have given us that, that were spurred by that day. I'm glad you brought that up, Chris, because this speaks to uh, space policy. Mm -hmm. Now, during during my few days in Washington, I attended a talk at George Washington University. It was Michael Collins, mm. uh, the third Apollo 11 astronaut who stayed in the module while Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin went down to the moon, and Charles Bolden, who was the head of NASA, NASA administrator, under Barack Obama. And Ellie Stofan, the former NASA chief scientist, she works for the Smithsonian now, and she's very high level. So they gave a talk at George Washington University, and I think that, you know, Michael Collins, he's advanced in age, obviously, but he's still sharp as a tack. He's still funny, mm -hmm. and he's still very thoughtful about space exploration and what it means for humanity. I think there's been a, quite a few astronauts that sort of promote this idea of the overview effect. And I think Edgar Mitchell from Apollo 14, even recent astronauts like Nicole Stott and Ron Guerin, shuttle astronauts, they promote this idea of, hey, if our leaders could see our planet from a distance, it'll really change their perspective. And that's kind of the idea of what Michael Collins wanted to drive home during this talk. He brought up Neil Armstrong and how worldly Neil Armstrong was in their tour after coming home mm -hmm. and how Neil would do deep research into every culture, every political situation that these countries were in before he met their people. And he thinks that, you know, even before they went to the moon, Neil Armstrong was this kind of person. But being on the moon and coming back really, you know, just put that in him that he was a worldly figure and those borders kind of disappear when you're in space. Yeah. And it was a pretty cool thing to hear. And just the overall theme of that talk was space is a soft platform for diplomacy. And that just goes directly to your call out there from Russ Cosmos. And I did see that tweet. And uh, they also tagged Jim Bridenstine in it, right? The they NASA did. It, it was, I believe yeah. it was actually addressed, the letter was actually addressed to Jim Bridenstine. That's really impressive. Yeah. And really cool to see. Yeah. But yeah, and just a funny anecdote from this talk at 
George Washington. Buzz Aldrin showed up at the very last minute, unannounced, came out on stage and started talking about water on the moon and all sorts of cool stuff. So it was a very cool experience getting to hear Michael Collins and Buzz Aldrin speak on the same night. Did it, I know they did have they did have something planned at Kennedy, but it didn't work out, right, Chris? Well, that's what I was going to ask you is, did it seem to you, because it certainly seemed this way to me, that Buzz Aldrin was very conspicuously absent from the celebrations? And mm-hmm. I mean, because Michael Collins, from what I know, both of them were invited, but Buzz declined to participate. That's what I heard at the events at the Kennedy Space Center on July 16th, the anniversary of of the actual launch. So Michael Collins was there with current center director Bob Cabana, himself an astronaut of, I believe, four space shuttle missions, uh, including the first assembly mission for the International Space Station, um, bringing that full circle from Apollo 11. And there was this great picture of Bob Cabana walking Michael Collins up the incline ramp at at pad 39A there. Right. But yeah, it seemed to me that Buzz was really absent from a lot of these. Is that sort of the impression you got too? It was. And that's why I was surprised to see him at George Washington University because he was never part of that lineup for that talk. And it seemed like he just showed up there at the end. Yeah. You know? So um, who knows Something what's going weird on? was happening <laughs> yeah. there. But, but you know, <laughs> go, go, going back to Michael Collins for, for, for a minute, you know, uh, Collins is the one who, who very sadly history overlooks because, uh, for this mission because he, he didn't set foot on the moon. He didn't go down to the right. surface with Armstrong and Aldrin. But without him, because of the way the Apollo spacecraft was built, there would have been no lunar landing. Because no, someone had to stay behind. The, the Apollo, much like the, the space shuttle that followed it, was not designed to be flown autonomously. So someone had to stay there. And, and another element of this mission that, that gets overlooked, and you know, obviously because the big event was landing on the moon, was that Apollo 11 carried science experiments. And it carried animal experiments as well, including mice, which are still used right. in experiments on the station today. So... I forget exactly when it was, but someone recently asked Collins if he was lonely up there. And and this goes to show how great a sense of humor he has is he's like lonely. Like everyone forgets about the mice. <laughs> that's what he, <laughs> like that's what he said. Yep. You know, he, he performed really important scientific experiments while Apollo eleven was in orbit of the moon. And again, without him, it wouldn't have happened. You know, we remember Armstrong and Aldrin, but but Collins is really the unsung hero of of that flight. I have to agree. Just seeing him be out there 50 years later, still promoting space exploration and how important it is to the world. Oh, yeah. And I want to go back to his relationship with Buzz Aldrin because you brought up a good point. There is something maybe going on there. But I want to say that in terms of messaging, at least from my perspective over the last few weeks, I've seen Michael Collins push in for a straight to Mars plan Mm -hmm. skipping the moon and uh, buzz aldrin is talking about going back to the moon i don't know if that's where the messaging is getting a little conflicted but that is the overall theme of those last two weeks everyone is talking about apollo 50th but we're also seem to be having a a community-wide debate about whether we're going back to the moon or going straight to mars there was a very awkward encounter where michael collins and buzz aldrin went to meet Donald, President Donald Trump in the Oval Office, and President Trump 
turned to Bridenstine and said, hey, can we just go straight to Mars? And it's just very, very awkward. Uh, let's just leave it at awkward, maybe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. We should actually do a, an, an entire podcast discussion on the policies of this, because this is very fascinating in, in terms of where right. the policies have landed on is it the moon or is it Mars or is it both and, and which one gets the priority? Um, but that's definitely more than we have time for in our podcast today. But what I will, yeah. but what I will say is Buzz's message of like going back to the moon in the last two weeks, th- that's a very radical departure from what he's been saying. That's what surprised r- me recently because, because he has yeah. been a very active proponent of no, we need to go to Mars. Like let he wrote other... a book about it. Yeah, and and I mean <laughs> the, the crux of a lot of this from him, right, has been let someone else do the moon, right? right? It's close enough. The technology has advanced enough that companies other than NASA can focus on this, right? And NASA's focus should be going back to Mars. But the flip side is actually true. NASA's focus is on returning to the moon and, and private companies, well, company, SpaceX, is the one focused on on Mars. So, you know, it is a little interesting that 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 message from Buzz seems to, to change. But it's also, you know, I, I think it's important to point out that the two surviving members of the first lunar landing, human lunar landing mission, have both up until about two weeks ago been saying, Mars, Mars right. should be the focus. And I think that's pretty telling when you've got those two heavyweights in, in, in this arena of off-Earth planetary body exploration saying, we need to be looking at the next planet. Let other people handle the moon. Right. NASA needs just to make this message clear. What what are they doing? What's the plan? And I think you and I could do like three podcasts about all the developments in the past three weeks, and we still wouldn't cover it. Uh, um, no, so but, I think that, but we yeah. should revisit that at some point. Yes. <laughs> yes. Speaking of Mars, let's talk a little bit about SpaceX. I know we weren't really planning to, Chris, but let's talk a little bit about Starship. And there's been some some chatter this week from Elon Musk, mm-hmm. and uh, I've talked to some people at SpaceX about how much they are ramping up Starship development. Oh, now, God. As we t- yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's insane. I feel like it's parallel, running parallel to this NASA's Moon 2024 plan. And Elon Musk granted an interview to Time Magazine and CBS News. He said something along the lines of, you know what, in order to show NASA that we can do this, we're just going to do it and that's it. And like, we're going to do it and prove that we can do it. Well, and to be fair, which has kind of been the motto for SpaceX right. from from their in, inception. I, I mean, right. they had to prove that they could get something to orbit first, right, on their own. And then, right. and then came the CRS contracts, which Elon has been very clear in saying, you know, that's what really saved the company and allowed it to grow. But they were the ones saying, why not reuse a rocket? And everyone right. was like, no, it'll never happen. No, well, that'll never work. <laughs> if CRS-18, later this week, lands successfully back at, at the landing zone one at Cape Canaveral, it'll be the 44th booster landing in that's, three and a half years. 
That's an insane <laughs> number. That, uh, um, I, I've been there for most of them, and I didn't know the number was that high. It's that high. And, you know, this mission from CRS-18 will also be the first time a Dragon spacecraft is reused three times. They're reusing right, boosters and- three times. The fourth one, the fourth booster reflight will be coming up at some point this year, we, we believe. You know, SpaceX's whole thing has been a, for the large part, except for the Dragons and, and crew transportation, has been a, well, we'll just do it and show you that we can do it. And... And this is also a company that isn't afraid to fail and fail publicly. So it's not surprising that that's the route they're taking with Starship. Now, now let's back up to something you said about like how they're really ramping things up. So Elon Musk confirmed, I believe it was late last week, that orbital flight tests of Starship, Starship, not the hopper that's in right. Starship. Texas yeah. that will be doing its first hop sometime this week, actually. Mm-hmm. Wednesday is the no earlier than day for that. But we're talking Starship. Now, not the super heavy booster, but the Starship. The element. passenger vehicle. The passenger vehicle. Orbital flight tests by the end of the year from Boca Chica and LC-39A at the Kennedy Space Center. Now... That's incredible because I think he said like three to four months or something like that, which even when you account for standard delays, and if you sort of look back at Hopper, he said Hopper's first flights uh, late last year would be in the March time frame, and we're in July. So if you sort of move that out, right, right, and keep moving that out, you can get to the end of the year with this, and and we'll be having or be very close to having these orbital flight tests of Starship. Now, what's really important about that, too, is 39A. This is the pad that was so integral, to, that launched the Apollo 11 mission. Um, it's the pad that their crew transportation vehicle for Dragon will launch astronauts to the International Space Station from, and they're in the process of modifying it to be able to launch the Starship into orbit. And, and, you know, NASA Spaceflight had this article about exactly what that's going to look like and how the pad is going to be modified. We published that about a month and a half to two months ago. So it's out there if you want to go look at it. But, you know, this, this is amazing. This is an amazing timeline. And, and even if they don't meet that timeline, even if it takes, you know, six or seven months instead of three, that that's still that's amazing. still before the (laughs) SLS's first uncrewed launch is scheduled to happen. Now, again, well, a lot is left to be seen, right? I mean, we have mm-hmm. to see the Hopper test flight with just one Raptor and then with three Raptor engines. And, you know, Elon is already hinting and providing some things, some information about how Starship is changing and super heavy. It's going to have a total of 41 engines, 41 Raptor engines. I mean, that thing is insanely powerful. Although I think all science fiction nerds when they heard 41 engines were like no no you've got to get one more in there for 42 i know and we gotta make it 42 joke, you know uh for hitchhiker's yeah. guide but it's incredible what what they're doing right now and, and of course you'll be listening to this before that hopper flight takes place tomorrow or the no earlier than hopper flight takes place tomorrow and, and before the crc team launch tomorrow as well tomorrow is going to be a busy day if both of those end up going right it will be a busy day but it's exciting times you know and, and it sort of goes back to that what are we doing? Are we doing moon? Are we doing Mars? And, you know, the answer to that right now from what's publicly released is indicating that NASA is focusing on the moon and SpaceX is focusing on Mars. Although we did have that very interesting tweet from Elon, I believe it was yesterday or the day before that showed the Starship launching on super heavy and then showed 
what a lot of people took to be an artistic display of, of a woman dancing in front of a full moon as being uh, an indicator of something to do with Artemis. Entirely possible. Uh, entirely possible. It could also be an indicator of the moon mission that they have planned for Starship where they'll take artists around the moon, dear moon, oh, true. the name of that. Right. But you know, it's an interesting time. And, and you know what, at the, end, at the end of the day, if we have one agency that wants to focus on the moon and we have another company that wants to focus on Mars, as far as I'm concerned, best of both worlds. I absolutely agree. Speaking of SpaceX, on Sunday, Elon Musk held the annual Hyperloop competition. Yes. Elon Musk is a uh, transportation man. That's his superhero name. <laughs> pretty, and, pretty much, uh, yeah. he wants, <laughs> you know, these, these competitions bring in international college students from around the world, teams, to build a, a pod that can basically be flung through this cylindrical tunnel and the fastest speed wins the competition. And uh, I think the winner this year was the same team from last year, the from the Technical University of Munich, Germany. And their record speed was 288 miles per hour, 463 kilometers per hour. And right before they reached that, the, the limit to win the competition, but right at the end of the track. Yes. <laughs> Uh, what, what did the tweet say? It was like they achieved the fastest speed a fraction of a second before an unexpected rapid right. disassembly or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Was the but, tweet. Uh, yeah. We have some photos up on the Supercluster HQ Instagram account. You can check those out. We're also going to put photos in the article page of this podcast. We had Tom Cross out there who's been a guest on the Supercluster podcast. And Tom shot some really great photos. It looks like everyone had a great time. Elon Musk uh, is posing with the students and some funny little tidbits uh, here, Chris. I had Tom. I was like, Tom, take some SpaceX-centered photos for us. He took a photo of a Jenga set. Oh, yes, SpaceX I Jenga saw that. Set. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cool. And a Connect 4, which we published in our Instagram stories, not in the post. But these are little tiny clues. So everyone is trying to figure out, you know, and obviously there could be an obvious reason why. Elon Musk is testing Hyperloop at SpaceX and kind of, you know, having it centered there. Yeah. But and and, for, and, and a... for those of you who don't know, just to give some geographical context, the, the Hyperloop competition literally takes place on the same street as SpaceX headquarters. Yeah. I mean, literally, it's SpaceX headquarters, a two-lane road, and the Hyperloop tube. So right. they're right there next to each other. So it's not odd that there would have been an ask for something about spacex during this competition. Right. Right. And when you look at infrastructure technology, batteries that are developed at Tesla, even Tesla's vehicles, and when you look at boring, these are all technologies that Elon Musk, in the back of his head, are going to be transporting to Mars one day to help develop whatever he wants to build there. And it's just interesting to see the kind of synergy between the companies. I have heard of examples in the past, unconfirmed, of course, that uh, Tesla, tes there is synergy between Tesla and SpaceX in various ways. Oh, and, and the, I do I, see, of course, there would be. You know, yes. <laughs> I and, mean, I mean, even with the Starlink satellite right, that, that exactly. are going up, you know, yeah. Right. So look out for more synergy between these companies going forward. Look for Hyperloop being developed as a Mars technology. Tesla batteries. Tesla rover. A Tesla Mars rover is something I see in the future. <laughs> that would and be cool. <laughs> that's why we decided to sort of be there for that. You never know where these technologies are going. And I personally believe that Elon Musk is developing these, these technologies in concert. 
and they're all about infrastructure yeah. and transportation and the basis for a new society and, um, and that he wants to build. And keeping with the theme of transportation, I think this is a good segue because we had two two important missions that launched within 24 hours of each other, actually. Right. We had on the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 lunar landing, we had Roscosmos launch a crewed Soyuz vehicle, the MS-13 Soyuz, up to the International Space Station carrying a Russian astronaut, a European astronaut, and a, an American astronaut. Um, so a truly international flight. And they uh, rendezvoused with the station six hours after liftoff and are now a part of the station's crew. The European astronaut, Luca Parmitano, will actually, in, in a couple of months, take command of the International Space Station. And he will be the third European to do so and the first Italian to command the space station. And wow. the NASA astronaut who launched on that mission, Dr. Andrew Morgan, will actually be spending nine months aboard the International Space Station, not six. So just like Christina Cook, who is currently aboard the station, had her mission extended from six months to nine months, and she'll be coming back in February. Instead of December, Drew Morgan will be coming back, not in December, but in March. So that's all, that was all really spectacular and successful. And then very shortly thereafter, the Indian Space Research Organization successfully launched their first lunar landing mission, the Chandrayaan-2 mission. It consists of an orbiter, a lander, and a rover. They successfully put that into a highly elliptical Earth orbit. It'll spend the next 30 days en route to the moon, gradually spiraling its orbit ever farther outward until it intercepts the moon. And then uh, after it does that, it'll spend about 14 days spiraling down into its lunar orbit and then the lander will pop out and about 48 days after launch the lander will touch down on the southern pole of the moon if it's successful it'll be the first soft landing on the southern pole of the moon and india will become only the fourth nation to land successfully on the moon now that's how you celebrate apollo 50 that's how you celebrate apollo that's how you do it you launch a mission to the moon one extraordinary feat for the indian space research organization it it really is and you know they are one to watch because they they go so much under the radar but they on their very first attempt they sent something into orbit of the moon on their very first attempt they sent something into orbit of mars they right. are a very impressive organization, and, and they bear a lot of watching because starting in about 2024, they will also have a human spaceflight program as well. Yes, that's true. Just to go back to Chandrian 1, yes, that mission yielded what has become the basis for going back to the moon, which is greatly adding to the research that there is water on the moon. I believe it was the confirmation uh, <laughs> right, it was the confirmation. It was right. the confirmation that I was trying was to be uh, on was, the moon. I was being subtle, Chris, but yes, <laughs> it was confirmation that there is water in the moon, and a lot of that now is being part of the conversation for going back there. I'd yeah, say. it was an interesting discovery, though, because it was made by the Chandrayaan One mission, but it was not actually announced until NASA was able to confirm it. So when they found it, they didn't just go out and blast it out to the world. They went to NASA and asked for confirmation that this was really there. And if NASA instruments on the Lunar Reconnaissance orbiter and and from ground-based observations could confirm it as well. But it was the Chandrayaan-1 mission that, that confirmed it on India's very first mission to the moon, and they found water. 
Well, let's see what happens with Chandrayaan 2. Um, everything seems to be going well so far, so Godspeed to that, to that probe. So far, so good. Yep, day and a half out. You said Godspeed, and I think there's one more thing that we have to touch upon in, in this podcast, right, right Rob? Right, right. Yes, definitely, and a very sad thing for the entire space community. Chris, I'll let you... Uh, share the news. Yeah. So yesterday, late yesterday, came word that NASA's very first flight director, Chris Kraft, had passed away. He was 95 years old. He was not only the first flight director for NASA, he actually worked for the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, or NACA, which was the predecessor agency to NASA. He was the flight director for every single one of the Mercury program missions. So he was the flight director for the first U.S. crewed spaceflight mission, the first crewed American orbital flight, the first American spacewalk during the Gemini program. During the Apollo program, he took on more of a management and mission planning role, but was instrumental in the buildup and, and the execution of the Apollo 11 landing and all of the Apollo missions. And then in 1972, he became the director of what would later become known as the Johnson Space Flight Center. And he held that position through the end of the Apollo program, the development of the space shuttle program, and until his retirement in 1982, after the shuttle program had begun. So Almost every single one of NASA's human, well, not every single one of NASA's human exploration craft, except for SLS and Orion, he had an integral part in. And the flight control system, mission control building at the Johnson Space Center is named after him. That was done in 2011. And very sadly, he passed away, but after a very long and and productive life. Yeah, his story paints him as a founding father of NASA sort of a integral pioneer and like you said a, a lot of the hum yeah human spaceflight program so i'm glad he got to celebrate the 50th anniversary before his passing yes and th and that's almost exactly what every single person said was that mm -hmm. very very happy that he got to witness that 50th anniversary well it's been a, a roller coaster week for the space community to say the least but you know i think that uh, now that we have this anniversary behind us we're all eager to look forward and move forward on what's next. And uh, we'll be following any recent developments. And Chris, we'll, uh, we'll catch up next week. I think next and, week's uh, going to be a big yeah, freaking episode. It, it is. It's going to be a much longer episode. <laughs> yeah. But Chris, just really quick, if you're listening to this episode, we're, you're probably an hour or two away from CRS-18, which is launching from Pad 40 at Cape Canaveral. Chris, any random facts we should know about this mission? It's launching right before, it's not a night launch. It's still gonna be daytime. It's about two hours before sunset. Yeah, okay. uh, 6.24 p.m. is the launch time, uh, Eastern Daylight Time out of the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. It is the first time SpaceX is flying a Dragon for the third time. So this one previously went to the station in April of 2015 and December of 2017. The booster is reused. It was previously used on CRS-17 back in May. Is it landing? Yes, it will. It will come back and land at landing zone one, back on land at Cape Canaveral. And it'll dock on, or it'll berth rather, on Friday morning to the space station. But the thing to note here, since this will come up for the launch, is that we do have an unexpected and unseasonal cold front approaching okay. Florida today. Okay. And that, while it's not bringing a whole bunch of moisture with it, it's what it's doing is it's changing the wind pattern flow over Florida. 
and all of the winds are going to be out of the west, blowing everything to the east. So all of Florida's normal afternoon thunderstorms that develop inland will get pushed to the coast. And the weather odds are about 70% no-go for both the Wednesday and the Thursday attempts for launch. So this one is really going to be that, does the 30% chance of good weather materialize or not on both of those days. But the good news is we don't just have those two days. We have launch opportunities out into the weekend and into next week if we need them. And the weather does improve the further into the week we go. Okay, great. And I did hear about that weather from our photographer, Eric Kuna, who will be shooting CRS-18 for Supercluster. We're really excited for that. So we'll have an update for you on that next week. Chris, thank you so much again for uh, joining. Hopefully we'll have an update on CRS-18 and Yes, and like Chris said, next week's episode will be much longer. Yes, it will. (laughs) Thanks for having me on again, Rob. Thanks, bud. Talk to you later.